G'day guys. Happy Father's Day to any dads out there. I got a Father's Day gift this morning. I woke up with a cold. So anyway, if I start coughing and sniffing and my eyes start watering, it's not that I'm... Well, it might be that I'm overcome with emotion preaching the Word of God, but it's more likely that it's my cold coming through. And I also, I went and bought these high-powered cough lollies that say they have antiseptic and now I can't actually feel anything in my mouth so if the (laughs) words don't form well tonight you know what it is but anyway let's pray heavenly father we do thank you for this book of two corinthians that we're returning to tonight and we pray that you'll help us to understand it correctly more than that we pray that you'll help us to think about what it means for us today and that you'll give us soft hearts so that we can make changes in ourselves and in our church where we need to to respond appropriately to your word and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may well have heard the, uh, the saying, I think it was Abraham Lincoln who made it famous, uh, apparently in the Gettysburg Address, uh, which is a famous political speech when political speeches meant something. Uh, but it, he, he was quoting someone else, but everyone thinks it was Abraham Lincoln that said this, when actually it's a forgotten poet. And he said, you can please some of the people all of the time, you can please all of the people some of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. And sometimes I think they replace the word please with fool. So you can fool some of the people some of the time, you know, and you can insert it for yourself. But it's true, isn't it? It's uh, true in just about everything. You cannot keep everyone happy all the time. And if you think I'm going to try and be everyone's friend and I'm just going to keep everyone happy no matter what, you will end up a quivering mess in the corner. It It just won't work. You can't do it. And it's especially true in the Christian life. Uh, I sometimes meet Christians who say, yeah, I just want to be held in high regard by everyone in this world. It it just won't work that way. If you're going to follow a Lord who was crucified because of the way he spoke against our world, not everyone's going to like you all the time. That's just a reality of life. And it's especially the case in Christian ministry. And as we come to chapter 10, so for the last two weeks, remember, we've had a break from 2 Corinthians. We looked at work with Jason. Uh, And you remember, before that, we looked at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which was sort of a little break off from the main flow of uh, of the letter of 2 Corinthians to think about the issue of money and giving. But now in chapter 10, we come back to the main theme that's been the main theme right through this book as we've looked at it together. And that is Paul, the apostle, defending himself and justifying his ministry and explaining this is why I am who I am and this is what I'm trying to do and the reason was as John raised for us to think about before there were people who were attacking Paul and there were people who were undercutting him and Paul had to defend himself and his gospel because the issue wasn't that Paul was worried what they thought about him he didn't really care I don't think you get the impression as you read this the issue was he was worried if people listen to these false teachers and give up on him they won't just give up on him they'll give up on the gospel that he was preaching. Sometimes people say this to me, they say, why can't we just say positive things at church? Why do we have to also say other things that are wrong? Well, the reason is if people follow things that are wrong, they will lose the gospel. They'll lose the word of God. And that's why Paul was defending himself. He wasn't so concerned about himself. He was concerned for the people that they follow the one true gospel and the true word of God. So you can really feel the uncomfortableness of Paul in this passage because he's sort of got to boast about himself and he thinks boasting is silly but it's like he's sort of thinking I've got to boast and tell you what's good about me for the sake of the gospel so that you listen to my message now why is this important for us I think that's always worth asking as we get underway well in defending himself what Paul does is he helps us understand what faithful Christian living looks like 
as opposed to what the false teachers were saying. And he also helps us understand what faithful Christian ministry looks like as opposed to what the false teachers were doing. So he actually gives us a model to follow. That's why it's worth looking at. So let's get into it. Come with me to chapter 10. Now you've got to remember, what was the criticism they were making of Paul? Uh, We've seen in the earlier chapters, they were calling him unimpressive. They were saying, Paul, you're just not as talented, not as impressive a public speaker and leader as these other guys who've come along after you. And now they were saying, more than that, they were saying, Paul is sort of like a bully. He he writes you these bold letters that seem really impressive where he rebukes you and challenges you. But when he comes in person, he's all gentle and timid and weak. This is saying Paul's like a two-faced bully who bullies you when you're not there to fight back. But then when he comes in person, he's unimpressive and not worth listening to. So you see the criticism if you look there in verse 10. It says, for it is said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak. And his public speaking is despicable. If you are a preacher, that is a horrible thing to hear someone say. If you ever want to write an encouraging feedback slip for me after my sermon, do not write that. Your physical presence is weak and your public speaking is despicable. Uh, Feel free to write whatever feedback you like, but I'd rather you didn't write that. Uh, Now, Paul makes a number of points in response. and They're there on your outline. I'm going to draw out a few. So his first point is gentleness is not a sign of weakness so they were mistaking gentleness for weakness and Paul says no gentleness is not a sign of weakness it's actually Christ-like so just look at verse 1 he says now I Paul make a personal appeal to you by the gentleness and graciousness of Christ I who am humble among you in person but bold toward you in absent it seems like they thought his humility and his gentleness and his graciousness in the way he treated them, that they were signs of weakness. But Paul is saying, I'm pleased that's what you think of me. I'm pleased you think I'm gentle and humble when I'm amongst you because that's what Jesus was like. So as a servant of Jesus, I'm not going to bully you. I'm not going to boss you around. I'm not going to push you around in that way. I don't look out of my, go out of my way to find opportunities to challenge you and rebuke you because Instead, I want to be gracious, I want to be humble, I want to be gentle, because that is the Lord I follow. That's what Jesus is like. It's interesting how the things our world thinks are weak are often actually the things that are strong and powerful. And the person they thought was the weakest was, of course, our Lord. So actually, they're signs of strength, gentleness, meekness, humility, slowness to speak, quickness to listen. That is Christ-like, and that is strength. But, and my second point, Paul says, even though I strive to be gentle and gracious amongst you, if I have to, I will rebuke you boldly. Look at verse 2. He says, I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are behaving in an unspiritual way. He's saying to them, please listen to my bold letter so that when I come in person... I don't have to be bold and challenge you and rebuke you. Look at how he puts it down at verse 11. He says, such a person should consider this. What we are in the words of our letters when absent, we will be in actions when present. If you you think I'm strong in my letters and weak in person, well, if you don't listen to the word of God, if you don't listen to what I've got to say, well, when I get there this time, you might find me a bit different. 
you might find me a bit bolder. That can sound like he's sort of threatening them. He's going to come and in the past I've been gentle, but now when I come I'm going to sort of throw my weight around, which was his right. Paul was an apostle of Jesus. God had appeared to him on the road to Damascus and given him a job to do. He had a God-given authority to challenge people and rebuke people and discipline people. So it can sound like he's threatening them. But then he gives this wonderful description of the authority that he actually has. It's not an authority of power. It's an authority of spiritual authority. And at its heart, it's an authority of persuasion. So look from verse 3. He says, for though we live in the body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way. What I find interesting there is that he sees this issue with the false teachers as a war, as a battle. As I said before, sometimes people say, why, do we, why can't we just say the positive things? Why do we have to point out error? Well, that's because it's spiritual warfare. It's a battle worth fighting because if people teach you a false gospel, you will lose your assurance of salvation. If people teach you a false gospel, you will turn away from Jesus and lose everything that matters. So Paul says, I'm at war with these false teachers. We're not pals. Don't get mistaken. These guys who preach a different gospel, who deny the word of God, they're my enemies. But in a normal war, you go and use physical force and you go and physically throw them out. Or you use words like our words, our world uses words as weapons, you know, with a caustic tongue and sarcasm and bullying and personal attack. You denigrate your opponent. But the faithful Christian servant uses something that looks far weaker than that, but something that's actually far more powerful. Paul says, what I use is the word of God. That's what I use. That's my weapon in this battle. So look from verse 4. He says, since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. I think that is one of the great pictures. Just look at those couple of verses again, four and five. He sort of pictures this false teaching as being like an enemy stronghold like a castle or like a bunker or something like that. And he says, I don't use physical force to come in and smash down these walls. I use this. I use the word of God and I put it out there and it tears down the walls of false teaching and it demolishes other arguments that are put up against the truth of the gospel and the truth about Jesus. And I tear down wrong understandings of who God is and who we are. Anything that is opposed to the true knowledge of God found in his word I use that word to tear it down. And then having torn down the wrong views, he says the faithful minister persuades people of the truth of God's word and God's way of thinking. And I love the way he puts it at the end of verse 5. Look at the end of verse 5. Taking every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what Paul wanted to see happen. I don't know if you think about this, but when you come to church and you hear a sermon... My aim, or God's aim more importantly, is that your mind will be taken captive by the word of God. And you will have these false ideas in your head and God, the plan is, his word will demolish them and rebuild the truth in your mind. And the same thing when you read the scriptures for yourself or when you go to your gospel team on a Wednesday night, any time you come into contact with the word of God. You see, Paul's saying, I'm not going to come and throw my weight around like some bully. I'm not just going to say, I'm an apostle. So just agree with me and be quiet. 
He didn't want to see people bullied into agreeing with him. And he didn't want to see people tricked into agreeing with him because he was a better arguer. He wanted people's minds to be brought into line with Jesus and his word. He wanted people's minds to be transformed by the clear presentation of the gospel and of God's word. See, Paul's God-given authority, like any faithful minister of the gospel, was to persuade people of the truth of God's word and then to explain its impact on their lives. But more than that, and fourth point there on your outline, Paul didn't see that his authority meant he had the right to come and tear people down. And he didn't have the authority to build himself up. He said, no, no, my authority is all about building you up. That's why Paul was so reluctant to get into a comparison game with these false teachers. That's why he's so reluctant to boast about himself and his authority. Just look at verse 8. He says, for if I boast some more about our authority, you sort of feel his reluctance there, can't you? He thinks boasting is stupid and ungodly. So he's saying, well, if I have to, if I have to boast, he said, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for tearing you down, I am not ashamed. See, Paul thinks boasting is stupid and ungodly, but he boasts in here reluctantly in something very, very different to his opponents. They boasted about themselves and how impressive they were. They particularly boasted about the size of their following. If they were around today, they would have loved Facebook and Twitter. And they would have boasted about the fact, I've got 4,000 followers, 4,000 twits who follow me on, on Twitter. You, you know, it's my new word for people who follow us. Anyway, no, that's unhelpful. They would have boasted about their impressive appearance you know, and the clothes they wear and how people like them. And they boasted about how gifted they were at preaching and how they were much better and they could speak in a way that Paul could never speak about. Really, what is it? It's boasting about themselves. But Paul says, I boast in the fact that God has given me a job to do. I boast in the fact that God has given me the authority and the opportunity to build you up, to strengthen you in the gospel, to encourage you to persevere, in following Jesus. And this is just the constant theme in this letter of 2 Corinthians. And I hope by the time we get to the end of it, you'll remember this, if nothing else. It is, you do not judge the work of God by worldly standards. God is not impressed with the things our world gets impressed by. And so the ministry that matters, whether it's my sort of ministry as a minister of a church like this or your ministry in teaching kids church or in sharing the gospel with your friends at work or whatever ministry you're involved in the ministry that God desires and is pleased with is a ministry that sees people hear the gospel that's what God wants and that sees people encouraged to grow in faith and grow in godliness and it's like Paul is saying to them if you want to compare me to these other guys stop comparing me about all that rubbish and just compare me on that basis. Who is the person who's been faithfully teaching the scriptures to people? Who is the person who's faithfully sharing the gospel with people? Who's the person who is seeking to build you up so that you grow in your faith in Jesus? These other guys might look impressive, but who's the person who's doing that? This sort of passage is hard to preach, by the way, because as any preacher preaches it, it sounds like I am justifying my lack of giftedness 
and saying, so don't ever tell me how to be a better preacher because you should just be happy with however it comes, you know. Or, or we can be justifying a lack of growth in our church and saying, yeah, actually, you're better to be a small church. But it's so important to get this right. And ministers need to hear this, but churches need to hear this. You need to hear this. Because it's so easy to get led astray from the one true gospel by a charismatic leader or by an impressive preacher rather than listening to see is it the word of God that is being taught and it's so easy to get led astray by the new church that that just seems more exciting or more hip or whatever it is we look for the test of a faithful ministry is do they teach the word of God faithfully and do they seek to build people up in their faith that is Paul's message in 2 Corinthians let's move on second half of the passage from verse 12 come there with me now before we get there though uh, this passage reminded me of something when I was growing up Uh, we always had this poster on the back of our toilet door which means I know it off by heart because you spend a little bit of time in that room and you're looking at the back of the toilet door and it was of the desiderata does anyone know what the desiderata is people used to have that on their toilet door as well a couple of people not many what did you guys have on the back of your toilet door anyway The Desiderata, it's this interesting thing. It was this poem that was supposedly written in 1692. So on the bottom of it, it had always had, wherever you find it, you look it up online later on, found in old St. Paul's Church, Baltimore in 1692. But then in the 1970s, this minister came out and said, actually, a bloke wrote it in 1950, and I just sort of bundled it up with some other stuff I found in Old St. Paul's Church, Baltimore, in 1692. So it's actually just a poem written in the 1950s. But because people thought it was old, everyone had it on their toilet door. But anyway, it starts like this. And when I say it, you might remember it. Remember it says, Go placidly amid the noise and haste, and remember what peace there may be in silence. I can give you the whole thing later on if you like. A few people now are going, oh, yeah, that was on the back of my toilet door. But anyway... Uh, There's one part of it, though, that I especially remember, and I was assuming a few more of us would have had this in common, and this would be a more better illustration. But anyway, there you go. It goes like this. It says in it, If you compare yourself with others, you may become vain or bitter, because there will always be greater and lesser persons than yourselves. Isn't that wise? If you compare yourself with other people, you'll end up becoming either vain, because you always find people who are less than you to compare yourself to or bitter because you can't find anyone less than you to compare yourself to and they're all better than you because there's always people who are better than you and worse than you at things and I think the guy that wrote that might have had this passage of scripture in mind when he wrote that line you see Paul's opponents loved the comparison game they loved building themselves up by comparing themselves to other people who were less impressive, and especially with Paul. And especially they loved saying, here are our strengths and there are Paul's weaknesses. And so Paul says, the very fact that you do that shows that you are a fool. The very fact that you compare yourself to other people in that way actually shows you're not worthy to be a minister of the gospel. It shows that you're ungodly and shows your lack of maturity and your lack of understanding of Jesus. Let's look at uh, verse 12. He says, For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. Now it seems 
These men were boasting about all sorts of silly things. If you go right through 2 Corinthians, it seems they were boasting about the fact that they had come from Jerusalem. And somehow that makes them more important than Paul, who's been wandering around Turkey and Greece for seven years. Uh, They were boasting about this church in Corinth and saying, oh, before we came, you were unimpressive, but now you're an impressive church, even though it was Paul who'd planted the church and started it. And so what Paul does in verses 13 to 16 is he walks this fine line. He reluctantly boasts. He doesn't want to boast, but he sort of has to boast about his ministry among them. But he says it's not to build himself up. What he's trying to do is to show them the difference between himself and these other men. So look at verse 13. He says, We, however, will not boast beyond measure but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. See, Paul is saying God gave him a job on the road to Damascus. It was his job to share the gospel with the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews in the ancient world. And then the other apostles, Peter, James and John, they gave him that job. They said, we'll concentrate on the Jews You share the gospel with the Greeks, with the Gentiles. And Paul has been doing that job. So he's saying to them, well, hang on a second. If anyone's allowed to boast about this church, it's me. God gave me the job of starting this church. And it's not you guys. It's my place. These guys are boasting about work they haven't done. Boasting truthfully is ugly enough, isn't it? You know, like Muhammad Ali, you know, when he used to get up and say, I am the greatest. And you sort of think, it's ugly, but it's true, so you're allowed to say it. You know, you, you were a pretty good boxer. Uh, but when you boast about someone else's work, it's just sad, isn't it? A long time ago when I worked in the city, I remember walking in to someone else in a meeting with my boss, and they were talking about all this good work they'd done. I go, hang on, I did all of that. And they were telling the boss that they'd done it all. They were boasting about my work. Well, that's what these guys are doing with Paul, and Paul challenges them. He says, well, if you guys are so great... I'll tell you what, go and plant your own church. Go and start another church where no one else has preached the gospel. Go do something new. And if you want to come and work here where I'm going, at least have the good grace to to teach the truth and not lead people astray. And that's what he's getting at from verse 15. Look there. He says, we are not bragging beyond measure about other people's labours. So that's what they're doing. They're bragging about my work when they should be going and doing something for themselves. So what you've got here, it's like Paul is sort of having an ancient form of an industrial relations dispute with these other teachers. He's saying, I'd rather you don't boast, but if you're going to, at least boast about something you've done, not something I've done. Now, all of that has a lot of relevance for wider ministry. If you're on a synod or a, you know, a bishop or an archbishop or something like that, and you're working out where should we plant a church and so forth, it doesn't seem to have a lot of relevance for us. But it is one of the reasons why I'm such a big supporter of Luther and Lenore Simons and what they're going to do out at Leppington. Because they're not... See, lots of church planters these days plant churches in places where there's already 20 other churches. And then they say, look at that, my church has grown because all these people have come from other churches. I think Paul would say to them, go do real work. And I think Paul would say to Luther and Lenore, who are going to a new suburb and say a new church, a place where no one else is doing that work, they'd say, well done. That's what I'm on about. Uh, he'd commend them to that. But that's big picture thinking for mission organisations and dioceses and bishops and that sort of thing. What are we to take from it in our daily Christian life? 
Well, the key principle is there at the end in verses 17 and 18. So look with me at verse 17. He says, So the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. And what he's doing there is he's quoting Jeremiah 9, which was our first reading. So flick back in your Bibles. I think it was page 700 if you've got one of the church Bibles. Flick back to Jeremiah chapter 9. If you don't have the same page numbers like me, if you get to Isaiah, come back towards the New Testament, one book. Isaiah and Jeremiah are so long that you will find them eventually. Uh, So Jeremiah 9, and it's verse 23 and 24. And this was Jeremiah talking to the Jews in Israel. And he says, this is what the Lord says. The wise man must not boast in his wisdom. The strong man must not boast in his strength. The wealthy man must not boast in his wealth. See, they're all things the world cares about, wisdom and strength and money. And Paul says, well, if, if you're wise, don't boast about it. Don't build yourself up. Don't tell people how good you are. Instead, verse 24, but the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh showing faithful love, justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. Have you seen the point there? I think it's a wonderful part of the Old Testament. The person who boasts about themselves and their impressiveness, whether it's their wisdom, their wealth, their good looks, whatever it else, is just a fool. The person who tries to think they're better than other people because of things like that is just a fool. That's all they are. Because the thing that really matters is knowing God, is knowing the Lord and knowing his love and knowing his righteousness. The wise person, the godly person, doesn't want to build themselves up. They don't want people to think they're good. They want people to know God and think God is good. And that's his point. That's why he he quotes this here. And that flows out into our godliness and our Christian service as well. As we strive to be more godly, and as we seek to use our gifts to serve God in whatever way, whether it's, as I say, sharing the gospel with people in our workplace, whether it's teaching kids' church, whether it's leading youth group, whatever it is, as we strive to do those things, it's so easy to cross over from wanting to glorify God to taking pride in ourselves. See, the sinful heart is a perverse thing. It can take good things and make them evil. And it can even take the most pure things. It's so easy to go from serving out of love for the Lord to serving so that people will think I'm good. Look at me, Lord. I'm so much more godly than those people over there. I'm so, much, I'm so thankful that I'm not an awful sinner like they are. I, I'm so thankful. Look at me, Lord, in all the ways I serve. Why can't those people use their gifts like me? Why can't those people see that they could give so much more if they just followed my example? Have you heard that sort of language before? You might have heard it in your own heart. But the place I was sort of quoting is that parable Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know the story? Where the Pharisee walks into the temple and says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not an awful sinner like him. And the sinner walks into the temple and falls to his knees and says, Lord, I don't deserve your mercy. And Jesus says, that's the one who went home right with God. Not the proud, arrogant fool, but the person who admitted they were a sinner. That is why I hate, just look around this church, 
And on your way out, read some of the plaques on the back wall. I hate those plaques with a passion. I hate any plaque. If you ever want to donate money and say, and then can we put a plaque on it, I'll say, donate your money to another church. I hate them. Have I said that strongly enough? And do you know why I hate them? Because you should not give to get your name on something. You should not serve to get your... The only reason they're there is because I legally am not allowed to remove them. That's the only reason, because someone got them put there. You know the things I'm talking about? This was donated by Fred Smith. There's nothing here donated by Fred Smith, so I'm not... I don't mind quite as much the ones that are donated in the memory of someone else, but even those I don't like. And the reason I don't like them is because that person is receiving the glory, not God. I wouldn't mind, better to not have any plaques at all because they're a pain, frankly. But wouldn't it be better to see a plaque that said, given anonymously so that God might be glorified? Given anonymously so that more people could hear about Jesus. And I'd love it if the plaque then said at the bottom, and feel free to remove me at any time if I get in the way. (laughs) So if ever you're in charge of something like that. See, ultimately we ask, why are you seeking to be godly? If you're seeking to be godly so I'll be impressed by you, well, your reward has been received in full. God's not interested. Why do I want to serve? Is it because I want people to commend me? Is it because I want people to think I'm better? Or is it because I want God to be glorified? Is it because I want people to know the Lord? Which leads us to the final verse. Look at verse 18. For it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. That's what matters. It doesn't matter what I think of me. It doesn't actually matter what you think of me. It doesn't matter what I think of you. It doesn't matter what you think of you. What matters is what does God think about you? See, that's why if you are in sin, that's why you repent of it. Not so that I'll think more highly of you, but because you want God to see you. You want God to commend you. That's what matters. What does the Lord think? That is the Lord who can see the true motivation of our heart. What matters is what the Lord thinks of your godliness and of your service. And he knows if you are doing it for your glory or for his. So let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen.